Well, the good physician Luke tells a delightful story about two followers of Jesus Christ who were walking, uh, engaged on a seven-mile hike from Jerusalem to a small village to the west that was called Emmaus. It was the morning of the resurrection, and the disciples were all in despair over the death of their Lord. But not only were they in despair over his death, but they were in despair because some women had gone to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. The body was gone. We're going to begin this morning by reading the account of this journey on the road to Emmaus because what Jesus does with the disciples is highly informative regarding how we ourselves ought to understand and how we ourselves ought to, uh, to understand and, and handle the Scriptures. It informs us how we ought to understand His birth, how we ought to understand His life, His ministry, His death, and His resurrection. But more than this, it informs us how we ought to approach the story of Scripture itself. You know, too often we come to the Bible, as we've been talking about throughout this series on, in the story. We come to the Bible and we see it as a collection of disconnected stories. This person's life, this person's sin, this person's uh, achievements, this person's that. Uh, and we, we see all these disconnected accounts of the lives of individuals who spoke in different languages, who lived in a time far different from ours, and who resided in a land and nations that are far away from our own. But God tells us in the epistle to the Galatians that it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What Jesus shows us on the road to Emmaus is that not only did He come at the fullness of time, but He shows us that everything that had come before Him pointed to Him. And pointed to his time. Indeed, it, it pointed to his suffering. It pointed to his, his glory. And so what he does is he shows the disciples how the Old Testament Scriptures all pointed to him and all pointed to this point in human history that people had looked forward to for thousands of years. And today we look back on in faith as we recognize that what God accomplished in the birth and in the life, the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, all centered around that time the fullness of time in which Jesus came. We're going to survey this scarlet thread that, that's woven throughout the Scriptures. But first, watch how this, this seven-mile hike unfolded as Jesus did the same for these two, these two disciples. Chapter, um, uh, in in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, we read, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were walking, talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near, and He went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. And He said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered Him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened that happened there, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, 
It's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Watch what he does in verse 27. Luke tells us, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And take note what Luke is doing here. These two disciples whose dreams of Israel's redemption seem to have been dashed by the crucifixion of their Lord. They don't know what to do with this talk of Jesus' body being gone. They aren't sure if they can believe the story of of angels told by the women. And, And as they're going, they're still talking about everything that happened, but Jesus points to them to their own Scripture and He shows them how how the Old Testament had spoken of these things long before. And he continues in verse 28 and says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going, he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what, was ha- what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As we celebrate Christmas, we don't just celebrate a baby who was born on earth, right? It's a great story. We love all the traditions, the kings coming and bringing gifts, the shepherds hearing angels. Amazing accounts of what God did when the incarnation took place. But we have to remember that that child grew up. That child lived a perfect life. That child was crucified on a cross. And that child rose from the dead and conquered death. And the Scriptures foretold it. What a, what a glorious revelation, right? Over the next days, months, and years, these same disciples uh, would continue to, to discover how Jesus had indeed come at the fullness of time. His sufferings and His resurrection to glory had indeed, pointed, had, had indeed been pointed to from the very beginning. And, and as we've seen in this journey through the story over this last few weeks, we've... Um, We've been zooming out, and what we've been trying to do is get this uh, view from God's perspective regarding how all the accounts of people's lives in the Old Testament are actually connected together. And indeed, they point to the coming of Jesus. We've been referring to these stories as part of the lower story, and we've seen how God, from God's perspective in the upper story, he, he unites all of them together. Uh, about 70 years ago, uh, Pastor W.A. Criswell he described all this as, as the scarlet thread. And interwoven throughout this whole tapestry of, of the Scriptures uh, runs this one common thread that holds all the pieces together. 
Follow that thread with me as we try to briefly repeat what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And look a little bit at what we've discovered in the story over this last few weeks. As, we, as we've seen, God be, begins the story with creation. And what did God declare? It was good. It was very good, he says the last time. It was, it was very good. Perhaps one of the most astonishing parts of this story is that God, God wanted to be in relationship with his creation. He created man as, as the, the, um, the centerpiece of his creation, the, 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 the culmination of that creation. He said, this is very good. And then he shows how he wants to have this relationship with Adam and Eve. He wants to walk with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to dwell in our midst. In the garden, he, he walks with Adam and Eve. And as we've seen over and over and over, God's desire to be with his people. But right from the beginning, what happened? We broke it. We, we broke it. We, we rebelled against our God. We went to war against our God. Every single one of us are born in sin, born at war with our Creator. And after the fall, mankind has been at war with God ever since. But immediately after Adam and Eve fell, the Lord immediately begins to weave this scarlet thread that eventually is going to lead to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. When we were studying the book of Genesis, we saw that immediately after Adam and Eve uh, took from the forbidden tree and they fell from their perfect state, uh, God cursed the serpent, God cursed the ground, and, uh, and within that curse, God makes a promise. The promise is the first Christmas prophecy of the Bible. The first promise indicating that God is going to send someone. Thousands of years ago, in the, right after the first sin, God recognized our need for a Savior. In fact, from the foundations of the world, He had recognized that we were going to need a Savior. And so He promises that He's going to send someone to save us from our sin. Look again at Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, as He's speaking to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. We all know that snakes and people uh, have historically not gotten along. Some of you love snakes, I, I know that. Um, but historically, you know, snakes are, are not good. You put your hand in a, uh, behind a brick and, you know, something's there and it's not good. And, and uh, death happens. Um, snakes and people uh, have been at war. But this curse is indicative of, of something bigger than just our hatred of, of slithery things. From the beginning, mankind has been locked in a struggle with the fallen angel that we know as the devil, Lucifer, Satan, the great serpent of old. But listen to the conclusion of this curse against the serpent where God prophesies that someone who will one day be the offspring of the woman. He says, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, right from the very beginning, God told Adam and Eve that their, in, their enemy would one day be destroyed by one of their descendants. I've always wondered if, if maybe they thought Cain, their firstborn, was that prophesied one. Can you imagine their disappointment when he murders his own brother, the first prophet of the Bible? And, and, and then others come after him. Others are born. You have Enoch who walks with God. He's taken up, and, and then he's gone. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and wondering and looking forward to this promise being fulfilled. And people waited. And they waited. And they waited for the promised one. The one that would, would bruise the head of the serpent, which is kind of a fatal blow, right? 
and, and he shall bruise his heel, which also was a fatal blow for Jesus. You see, they had no way of knowing that how much time would pass and everything that would ha- pass until the coming of Jesus. But at the cross, Jesus dealt that death blow to our ancient enemy. And the Satan at the cross dealt a death blow to Jesus who paid for our sins by dying on, in our place. But then he rose from the grave and conquered not only Satan, but he conquered death. He conquered our sin. You see, foreshadowing this sacrifice then, God establishes a standard for the remission of sins. Our sin has to be taken away. Something has to be done to deal with it. And so right from the beginning, after the curse of the the serpent and after the curse of the ground, he gives this promise, and then immediately after this, we're, we're told that the very first thing that God did before he even sends them out of the garden is God provides clothing for them. I don't know if you've noticed this before. Most of you may have seen this. He provides clothing. What kind of clothing was it? Was it a fig leaf? Was it Gucci? Skins. Leather. And the only place that I know of that, that leather comes from um, is from an animal. He clothes them with skins, and, and he, an animal died. Can you imagine the horror as they observed the, the blood being shed of an innocent animal? Perhaps it was the first time they saw something killed like that. Probably was. And, and then that animal was used to cover them, both physically and spiritually. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the sacrifice of innocent animals, they're, they're continually offered. This wasn't the only time, was it? Continued on after this. We're told that Abel was one who kept the flocks and, and he brought his sacrifices to the Lord. And people would bring their sacrifices and, and blood was spilt as an offering for, for covering their sin. Hebrews informs us that those sacrifices um, were limited though. So they were sacrificed over and over and over and over again. The blood of bulls and goats was, was temporary, and, and it could never wash the sins of men away. It, it, only, it only covered sin until God fulfilled his promise and did something that he had promised that he would do, until God eventually did something that would be a more permanent solution. In Genesis chapter 4, we find Abel, the first prophet of the Bible, and he offers sacrifices of living animals. In Genesis 22, Abraham was commanded to offer his own son the promise of his old age. God commanded him to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And remarkably, we see that Abraham obeyed. By faith, he recognized that God could even raise him from the dead and still fulfill his promise. And so Abraham takes his son and they go to the mountain that God showed him. And right at the last moment, God stops Abraham from killing his own son. And instead of killing Isaac, we see that God does what? Provides a ram. He provides a substitute. Abraham turned, and, and there in the, in the thicket was this ram caught by its horns. Again, we see this concept of something innocent dying in our place, and the Scriptures pointing to what was going to eventually be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. In Genesis 22, verses 13 to 14, we read this. It tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by, the, by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Again, there's a prophecy. 
Not only do we find this first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the first Christmas prophecy, the first prophecy of the Bible regarding the coming of Jesus, but here in, in uh, Genesis, there's another prophecy, a prophecy of a provision, a, a, a promise of the coming of Christ. The Lord is going to provide for His people. There are a lot of scholars who believe that this same mountain where God provided that ram is where in, in the book of 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, David makes a sacrifice. There's a plague that was overtaking the city and thousands of people were dying in Jerusalem. And so David went out and he bought this land and he makes this sacrifice to stop the plague. And while it's not certain, it's possible that this may be the very mountain where David made the sacrifice and it may even be the same mountain where a thousand years later another sacrifice was made. A mountain called Golgotha. Right outside of Jerusalem near where David may have been, maybe even the exact place. And there Jesus would be crucified. Whether or not it was that exact mountain, you can see how this, this scarlet thread that leads to the blood of Jesus, this scarlet thread that was colored by the blood of rams and innocent lambs, it, it weaves its way throughout the Old Testament. And, and through all of its prophecies, it leads to the coming of the Messiah. It points to Jesus who would literally be the Lord who would give Himself on the mountain and would literally be the one who would provide for the sins of all the people by giving His own blood. Likewise, we see the same thing happening in Exodus. Remember when we were looking at, at the plagues that, that came against Egypt and Pharaoh? And on the, the last plague, we saw this, this plague of the, the firstborn. God said all the firstborn are going to die. But if you do this one thing, then the angel of death will pass over your house. And so they would kill an innocent lamb, the Passover lamb. And they would take its blood and they would paint the, the blood on the, the posts and the, the lintel of, the, of their doorways of their houses. And God's angel of death literally passed over them because a substitute had been offered in their place. In the New Testament, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, uh, we're told that Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. And so again, we see how even when, when things were being instituted and nobody had any idea that this was going to be pointing to something else, Jesus points back and He says, look, I, I was there in the garden when the promise was made. I, I was there in, in the thicket when the ram came forward. There, there was a substitute that was made. And on, that, on, that, on the mountain, God will provide. And, and in the Passover... It was a prediction of what Jesus would do when He would come and He would be our substitute. And God would pass over our sin even as the angel of death passed over each one of those houses on that day. The seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent, He offered Himself as a substitute. These sacrifices would continue to be offered through the Old Testament. As we read, you've been reading through the Bible over this last few weeks, and you may have gotten to passages like Leviticus and Numbers, and you read these repetitions of this sacrifice and that sacrifice, and, and uh, a lot of times we, we get to those passages and we go, oh, you know, these are the really exciting portions of the Bible, right? But each one of them are pointing to what happens when a substitute is made and when the Messiah would come. These sacrifices would continue throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus, we see that God institutes an entire system of, of priests and sacrifices where the blood continues to flow for over a thousand more years. And God states in Leviticus 17.11 that the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 22 is later going to, to state it like this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we see that indeed, this thread of a coming deliverer, this scarlet thread that we see throughout the Scripture that leads to the coming deliverer and the, the shedding of the blood to bring about our redemption. We see that this scarlet thread is, is woven throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, there's a story of a literal scarlet thread, uh, a scarlet rope. And, and it was used for the salvation of one family. Uh, a couple spies came into to Jericho, and they were checking out the land to see, to see what God was going to do and, and what God had given to them. And so these two spies came, and, and they came to the house of a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. She had a family there, and, and um, she protected them, and then she sent them on their way. And they told her, you know, the city of Jer- Jericho is going to be destroyed, but, but God has provided for you, and, and he will protect your family if you take this scarlet rope that you let us down out, out the window through the, through the wall. If you put, put this scarlet rope hanging out of your window, we'll see that, and uh, your family will be spared. Before they left, they warned her, In verse 18, they say, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when the Israelites came and they marched around the city, you know the story, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, they marched around it one day, two days, three days. On the last day, they marched around it seven times. They blew the trumpets, they yelled, and uh, the walls came tumbling down. But God spared Rahab, and he saved her life. He saved the life of her family. Um, not only did he save the life of her family, but we're going to see her later on in Scripture. You, you know where we find her later, right? She's one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. This woman who was a prostitute, a pagan, a, a, a person from the, the land of Canaan. And she, by faith, came to, came to salvation that God gave to her, and, and we see that she even becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus. And so God did what had been foretold. Um, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead on myself. So we see that our, our salvation in the same way, uh, our salvation is accomplished when we come to the foot of the cross and when we leave our sins at the feet of Jesus. Uh, this scarlet thread that we see as the blood of Jesus Christ um, is foretold throughout the Scriptures. And unlike Rahab, we don't need a red rope that needs to be hung out of our window, right? We don't have to hang out a, a red rope as a demonstration of our faith. But our salvation is accomplished when we come to the foot of the cross and, and we recognize our sin and we repent and we come to Him believing what Jesus Christ has done. Later on, when the disciples are in prison, there's this great earthquake. There's a jailer there, and fearing for his life, um, he, he's about ready to commit suicide. And they say, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. And he turns to them, and he asks a point-blank question that we all, we, we want to share the gospel with people, right? And we just would love for people to come and ask us that question. What, what do I need to be, do to be saved? Wouldn't it be that great if it was always that easy? 
And he says to the disciples, what do I have to do to be saved? And so they turned to him. The apostles answered the jailer and said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, he recognized that he had a problem. He was a sinner. And he needed God to deliver him in some way, just as every one of us needs. And so God did what he had been foretold throughout the entire Old Testament. He sacrificed blood. But this time it was the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And like this jailer, God calls to us who say, what do I need to do to be saved? We long to know. We long, to, we long for heaven. We long for eternity. We long for a, a relationship with this God. But we're unable to accomplish it in and of ourselves. And so what do we need to do? The apostles tell us, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There are many other prophecies of a coming Messiah. There were, they were threaded throughout the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. They're woven into the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. They're the dominant theme of the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah 30 and 31. We haven't got there yet in our study of the story, but we will. Isaiah foretells of the coming of the Lord's righteous servant. Micah foretold that, he, that the Messiah would, would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel foretold of the Messiah's coming everlasting kingdom and that he would bring an end to sin. Zechariah foretold that the king would come riding on a donkey. And Malachi told us that the Messiah would even have a forerunner who would prepare the way for Jesus. In the book of Numbers, we're also told that when a plague broke out among the people, Moses took some bronze and he fashioned it into a serpent. Kind of unusual, right? You don't think of images being made and people would say, well, isn't that like an idol? But God does something different. He says, I want you to, to do something. If you've been bit by a serpent... All you have to do to be saved from, from the bite so that you don't die is go outside of your tent and, and look at this serpent that Moses, Moses raised up on a, on a staff. Well, that's kind of unusual. I think I'll go to the doctor. He can fix it, right? God says, no. If you want to be saved, if you want to be delivered from the poison that's coursing through your veins, all you have to do is go outside and look up at the serpent. All they had to do was respond in faith, believing what God said. Kind of unusual, but God said it, and so those that believed and those that acted on it were healed. Over 1,400 years later, Jesus proclaimed to Nicodemus, pointing back to this scene where Moses raised up this serpent on a staff. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. You see this scarlet thread that started back in Genesis chapter 3 right after the fall of man that God was, looking, God was showing that, that they could look forward to the, the accomplishing uh, of the forgiveness of their sins. A, a solution for the problem that has plagued mankind ever since we fell. This scarlet thread is woven throughout the entire Bible 
and through the entire history of mankind. These aren't just a collection of scattered stories, are they? They're not just a bunch of scattered stories that teach us of random events, of random people's lives. Their story, in fact, is our story. These men and women are are people who believed God. They trusted what God said about their sin. And they trusted what God said about salvation. And God took their faith and He credited it to them as righteousness. They were never saved by good works. They were never saved by good deeds. Otherwise, they could have boasted about it. So as we celebrate our Lord's birth this week, I'd like to encourage you to respond to his word in a couple ways. First, if you've not responded like these saints of old by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, who died as your substitute, the substitute that was pointed to from the very beginning, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as they did, as the Philippian jailer who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, look upon him who was born lower than the angels and then was lifted up on a tree and believe on the one whose blood was shed instead of yours. This Christmas, don't just celebrate the the giving and receiving of gifts, but receive the great gift of God's Son and, and receive the forgiveness that comes from the one who is the way and who is the truth and who is the life. Secondly, let us celebrate our Lord's birth by considering what the prophets have spoken. As you celebrate Christmas this week, as you open presents, as you, as you get the manger scene, as you put decorations on the tree and Christmas lights up, let us remember that the prophets had, had predicted His coming for thousands of years, and now we live after that time, and we celebrate what God has done, and that we get to be a part of that. Let us remember that not only did He come as a babe, but, he, he, but, he, but give thought also to this child, that, what He came to do. And how it was necessary for him to suffer and enter into glory. Let us meditate this week on the scriptures and how they foretold these things concerning our Lord. And like like the disciples who walked with him on the road to Emmaus, might, might the scriptures open our eyes. Might we recognize our Lord as his scarlet thread is woven throughout the pages, throughout every page that we read. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you had a plan. From the very beginning, you, you planned on your son dying for us. We thank you that we can look back on that. That we live in a time when we're not wondering, not waiting, not trying to figure out how are you going to provide, but, but we look back and we see what you've done in the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we give you praise for how you have provided for the salvation that you give to us. Father, if there's anyone here that has not come to a point in their life where they have put their faith in you as the solution to their sin problem, I pray that today that they would believe. And I pray that each one of us would trust what you say in your word and that as we walk by faith and as we live our lives by faith, might each one of us Live in a manner in which we believe the things that you say. As we celebrate Christmas, might this be a wonderful opportunity for us to remember how you've thread this, this theme throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of time, even before the foundation of the world. 
Lord, we give you glory today. We pray that you, would, that you would bless this week as we celebrate together. May you bless this week as we, as we worship your son, Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself in us. Amen.